The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing. Striving, as always, to be your public radio source for the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Today is question and answer day on Real Life Real Estate. Um, almost always on the last Saturday of the month, we or Saturday. Where am I? What day is it? The last, the last two, Wednesday of the month. <laughs> I know. She shows up at the station drunk for the first time. The last Wednesday of the month. <laughs> He's writing the cheat sheet for me. Last Wednesday of the month. Now, see, okay, I'll tell you what, what actually is going on. I'll tell you actually why I got the day of the show wrong. I'm, I'm actually trying to, to type into our Facebook page that you need to you need to call in and ask questions because I hate it when there's question and answer week and like I'm tap dancing because the phone's not ringing or there's not a question in the in inbox. And so I was, I was trying to multitask and that's always a mistake and also coming in drunk. Um, 877-772-9658 is the number to call in with your real estate questions from anywhere in the country. Um, this is assuming, of course, that you're listening to us on Wednesday night between 5 and 6 p.m. and not on the podcast, in which case you will get nothing if you call that number. If you're trying to like not let your boss know that you're listening to the radio and you just want to do it via email, you can go to our website at realliferealestate.com and fill out the question and answer box. Or you can just send an email to to askvina at gmail.com. Any question that you have, whether it's about rentals, retail deals, wholesale deals, owner financing, land contracts, finding values, how to get started, how to get out, whatever you want to ask is fair game at on uh, question and answer week. Again, the number here in the studio, if you'd like to call your question in, which pretty much guarantees it's going to get answered, is 877-772-9658. If you are um, more interested in doing it via email, askvina at gmail.com is the number to call. Now, we do have a couple of questions that came in prior to the start of the show because... Um, people know that question and answer week comes up and they very often will go to realliferealestate.com and fill in questions there and then wait for the answer. Uh, you don't have to wait today. You can just go ahead and you can just go ahead and, uh, you know, call or email. Uh, but this one is from John in Indianapolis. He says, I've been approached to be a private lender on the purchase of a single family home. 
The home is in excellent condition, just needs cosmetic improvements. It's a 2,100 square foot home built in 2004. It's in a nice subdivision, safe with good schools. It's a suburb of Indianapolis. It would be bought for 102. So this is not a not a property that the borrower already owns. A comprehensive market analysis says that the after paired value would be 185. The buyer would put down seven and I would lend 98. It would be a first lien position. The current owner, I guess that would be the seller, uh, lives out of state. The owner-to-be would live in the house as a live-in flip. The owner-to-be, that is the borrower, would therefore be in an owner-occupant. His plan is to live there for three years and then either sell when he would sell where and he would be the listing agent or do a cash-out refi and keep the property as a rental. Uh, he has a 660 credit score. When I asked him why not get conventional financing, he says he doesn't have a W-2 uh, given this, he was somewhat reluctant to have discussions with the bank and he wanted to see if he could get financing without the bank. So the question is, he wants a loan with a three-year balloon. We haven't discussed the interest rate. My question centers around Dodd-Frank. He would be an owner-occupant borrower. I told him that I thought a loan with a balloon is prohibited by Dodd-Frank as he would be an owner-occupant. Is this true? He told me that in order to get around this, if this in fact would be a stumbling block, that he could buy the home in his LLC, would buying it in his LLC circumvent the Dodd-Frank provision? Would this scenario be one where a mortgage loan originator would have to get involved? That's like nine different questions there, John, but they're all good ones. Um, First of all, let's take a step back from the whole question of Dodd-Frank and say, should you be lending to an owner-occupant? And the answer for most private lenders is just flat out no. And the reason is the laws and rules for lending somebody money against a property that they intend to live in are different than the laws and rules for lending to someone who has a property that they intend to hold as an investment. The rules for lending to investment property owners are much less strict and you're less likely to violate them. And I mean, you know, bottom line is the government has decided it cares more about owner occupants than it does about investors. You need to check with an Indiana lawyer because this is the, you know, whether whether or not you have to have some other kind of license or, or whether you're, you know, the, the interest rates are often restricted for owner occupants in a way that they're not restricted for investment properties, you need to check with an Indiana lawyer and see if if you can do this or if it is a good idea. So um, that's question number one. I mean, Dodd-Frank or not Dodd-Frank, most of the private lenders I know will not loan to an owner-occupant. And the fact that he has he has told you he's going to live there and then said, oh, but we can get around this, by having me buy it in my LLC is not going to protect you if something goes wrong and he stands up and claims that you you didn't treat the loan correctly because it was really an owner-occupied loan and you knew it because you do know it. The Dodd-Frank issue, uh, yes, that is correct. You can, unless you are, unless this had been your primary residence and you were selling it as the owner, you would have to follow all of the provisions of Dodd-Frank with one exception. So you can't put a three-year balloon in it. Um, You would have to fully qualify the buyer. And, um, you know, even though he wants to do it and you want to do it, you can't. You can't unless Dodd-Frank is repealed, which we're all looking for. Uh, forward to. 
would a licensed mortgage originator have to get involved? Uh, probably not. If you have not done three of these kinds of, of I'm financing them deals in a rolling calendar year, you don't actually have to get a licensed mortgage originator involved, but you do have to um, comply with all of the other Dodd-Frank rules. So for everyone out there who thinks that the role of the government is to protect you, protect you from other people, protect you from businesses that are going to take advantage of you, protect you from making decisions that you shouldn't make. This is a perfect example of where we've got a ready, willing, and able borrower who actually sounds pretty sophisticated. It sounds like he's a real estate investor and he just happens to be wanting to live in this house. You've got a ready, willing, and able lender and the deal can't happen without the lender breaking the law. No, no one, no, no, but both people know what risk they're taking one assumes and yet they can't they can't do it because there's this law that says that if john loans this guy money and he comes back later and says you broke the law by putting a three-year balloon that i wanted into the loan um the the borrower could claim two years worth of payments back because that's what the law says he can do when the law gets in the way of intelligent adult human beings making deals with each other that they both agree to make and both understand the risk of there's probably a problem you're listening to real life real estate investing it's question and answer week and we're taking your questions at 877-772-9658 or alternatively if you'd like to send it via email you can do that at askvina at gmail.com Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Today is question and answer week, which means if you have questions about anything about real estate investing, from getting started to getting retired, whatever, give us a call at 877-772-9658. That's 877-772-9658. Or just send it via email at askvina at gmail.com. We're going to go ahead and go to the phones. Line one, Joe. Joe, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. I feel like the line's open, but I can't hear Joe. Joe, hang on. Um, Mike's going to do whatever magical thing he does when he runs out of the studio and and goes and does things. And in the meantime, um, if you're in the greater Cincinnati area, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati is holding its first meeting for the month of March next week on Thursday. That's March the uh, 2nd. And um, I won't be in town, but y'all need to go there and heckle Mr. Drew, who's a sometime host of the show here. He's going to be doing an hour and a half long presentation on uh, negotiation, like like talking to sellers and how he's successfully done that, I don't know, like a thousand times. And um, it's open to the public. Uh, it is... More information at CincinnatiRia.com. The early meeting is about how to hire a virtual assistant, and it's a step-by-step walkthrough of here's the website you go to, here's what you post, here's what happens after you've posted it, here's how you interview somebody. So that's in Cincinnati. It's next week, CincinnatiRia.com for more information. Do we have Joe now? Joe, welcome yeah. to Real Life Real Estate. There he is. Hi, Joe. Hi. So if there is a lien on a property, a federal lien, and the seller is claiming that it is not him who uh, owes the taxes. What does the buyer do to assure that 
it's not uh, him or how do, how do you get it cleared off? That's a real so common can... that's a real common problem, Joe. Um, I, we're actually uh, dealing with a, a seller right now whose name is John Johnson. So as you can imagine, when the title search was done, there were like a million John Johnsons with federal liens, state liens, you know, child support liens. And generally, uh, the title company can take care of that. Uh, I assume you've gotten a title search here, and that's how you know about the lien. Is that correct? Well, the transaction hadn't progressed to that point yet. Okay. So here's what you do. You go ahead and you, you, make, a, you make the contract. Right, I agree to pay you X dollars, and you agree to take X dollars. It is, of course, subject to him being able to transfer clear title. Right. You know, it would never, you would never close if you couldn't get clear right. title, and the, and the contract would be real clear on that. You turn it over to the title company; they will see the same thing you're seeing, which is that there's a there's a lien of some sort that has attached to the property. They will then go through their process, which will involve getting your seller's social security number, because pretty much all federal especially tax liens are attached to a social security number when you see it when you see it in the in the lien book there's no social security number it's just somebody's name um, okay. but they will check with the federal government and the state and make sure this is not this guy okay and they will then issue title insurance which is the important part here right when they've determined that it's not this right. guy they will they will issue title insurance to you that assures you that going forward if it turns out that it was this guy after all you're covered Thank you. You are very welcome. Good luck with it. I hope it turns out not to be him. <laughs> Good luck to you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, Joe. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And uh, that means that whatever questions that you might have, um, including title questions, are are good questions today. 877-772-9658 is the number to call. Uh, if you're here in the greater Cincinnati area, you can call the local number, which is 772-9658. And um, we can also take emails, askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. Uh, just got an interesting question from... Can't, can't tell if it's Tamala or Tamia. I apologize if I just butchered your name. I'm sure I just I just did in some way. Anyway, um, Tamia says, if you have time, could you go through the employees that you have in your company and what they do? Um, and that's a that's a a great question, I guess, because um, uh, Tamala must be. Um, somebody who's somewhat familiar with uh, my operation. And uh, it is, in, in fact, the case that I do not do all the deals that get done in my office all by myself. I do have other folks involved. Um, there is my partner, Drew, who primarily works in the wholesaling business. Um, he is not so much an employee as uh, he's, a, he's a 1099 contractor who gets paid based on um, deals that, that happen. Uh, in addition to that, I have an acquisitions coordinator who is is basically the person who administers most of the acquisitions. So uh, does things like make sure that 
marketing is going out, when phone calls come in, is interviewing the seller in the initial um, interview, uh, running comparable sales on any leads that we get. Um, I communicate with the acquisitions coordinator about those deals once that part has been done, and we talk about whether whether it's a property we're interested in, and if so, uh, at what price. The acquisitions coordinator then calls back the seller and uh, either schedules an appointment or tells them, you know, it's not going to work or it's going to work at some other price. Uh, she sets up the closings, um, makes sure all the paperwork gets filed, you know, all, all of the stuff that would fall under the category of administrative as opposed to actual evaluation of deals and going and seeing them and so on. Um, the other primary employee that we have is a bookkeeper. There's a um, We have a, a bookkeeper who works full-time for my various companies, but only part-time in the real estate business. I also have a an attorney who is basically on a permanent retainer. Um, we have a couple of virtual assistants who do minor things like um, you know, straightening out databases, making sure that names are typed correctly on mailing lists and things like that. And um, I feel like I'm missing somebody. Oh, uh, we're in the process of hiring a full-time construction manager, someone who can make sure that turnovers happen and that retail deals happen. And uh, that's it. Um, there are there are businesses, there are real estate investing businesses out there that are much larger than mine, but one does have to make a choice about um, lifestyle versus how big one wants to get. So um, I'm not interested in having a company with, you know, 30 employees coming and going all the time and all that, all that management and and so on. I'm I'm interested in having a life where uh, money is abundant, but uh, so is time. So that's it's, um, an interesting question, Tamil. I don't think anyone has ever asked that on the radio ever before, but uh, happy to answer it. Uh, again, it's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing, and um, we are taking any questions that you might have at 8 Seven 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 two nine six five eight eight seven 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 two nine six five eight, or via our website at realliferealestate.com or just just send an email to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And every single month when we do question and answer week, it's a big risk. It's a big risk that it's 65 degrees outside in February and everybody is outside enjoying the weather instead of glued to their radios or internet connections, I guess, listening to real life real estate and the questions just don't come in. And that seems to be the situation we are in today. Uh, I don't have another topic to talk about, folks. It's like, if you don't ask questions, I got no show. So uh, how about calling 772-9658 here in the greater Cincinnati area, 877-772-9658 outside of the greater Cincinnati area, or send them via email to askvina at gmail.com. Okay, I might not... I might not have been completely honest when I said there were no questions. I have one question left in my email queue here. And the question is, how, to, how do I explain to my attorney what a land trust is? 
I don't live in Illinois or Florida, and because my attorney can't find anything about land trusts in the state law, he is telling me that they do not exist here. I know that they do, but I can't seem to get him to believe me. Um, that Oddly, that is not the... That, that was from Joe, by the way, in New York. And Joe, that is not the first time I have heard that, that you you actually know more about land trusts than your attorney does and your attorney rather than going to research it simply tells you that it doesn't exist or that it's not legal in your state or something like that and none of that is true um the you can only do so much in terms of trying to educate your attorney one of the ways that I have found that seems to be effective in educating attorneys about things that they don't seem to know about or don't seem to want to know about is having another attorney talk to them. I mean, for for me to talk to an attorney and say, listen, let me tell you what the law actually is, just seems to be deeply ineffective kind of all the time. Like, I just can't get through to them. But many times if my attorney tells them that something is the case and points to, you know, this and this and this to prove it, all of a sudden they 100% believe it. My pat answer to this is get a new attorney, <laughs> you know, get one, get one who already understands land trusts. There's nothing wrong with having multiple attorneys. I have one that does my evictions and a different one that does my contracts and a different one that does my my IRA stuff, you know, it's fine. You're not going to, you're not going to offend. Hopefully you're not going to offend your attorney by going and finding one who can do land trust stuff for you. Um, typically the way I would find that person would be to go to my local real estate association, find out who is using land trusts and find out who they used because they have already trained their attorney and you don't have to go all the way through this with the attorney. And I know I know how frustrating that is when you know something is correct and you can't get it through to your to your professional, whoever that might be. But um that's that may be the position that you're in. So I appreciate your question, Joe. And uh thanks a lot for listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh 9658 uh, is the number to call with any questions for Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can also uh, send us an email. You just need to go to askvina at gmail.com, askvina at gmail.com. Uh, we'll get stuff here via email, although I got to tell you, uh, um, typically calling is a lot faster. Typically, um, it, it, it seems to be always the case that I leave here and then after after I am gone, I'll get more questions. Um, okay, just got a question in via email from Mike who says, and I'm going to have to like skip a lot of words here because he's talking about a specific, a specific instructor and a specific course. And then the question that he is asking me is what do I think about a marketing approach that involves picking out entire neighborhoods where there might be distressed properties and mailing to everyone in 
that neighborhood because this instructor claims that it is a um, very, very highly high returning type of um, mailing to do. And I am familiar with the instructor. I'm familiar with the mailing that it does, that, that, it, that, that, that they do, that they're sort of requiring. And I can tell you that if the response rate that this instructor is claiming is anywhere near correct, it is because he is counting everyone who calls and says, you have, in, you have offended me so badly that you should never reach out to me again and take me off your mailing list, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I know this because I have had students who have tried exactly what you were talking about. In other words, they pick a whole zip code, they mail to every owner in that zip code, they mail this extremely offensive postcard that basically basically says, I have tried to contact you before and you have not contacted me back. What is your problem? And... Every student that I have seen that has tried this has found the response rate to be relatively high, but the qualified response rate to be very low because the whole purpose of direct mail marketing is to reach out to people that you think might have a problem and build rapport with them. It is not to reach out to everyone on the planet, whether they actually want to sell their house or not, and then offend them. So I, I suspect that the reason you're asking the question is that you have an instinct that tells you that this is not going to work and I think you can try it, but that your instinct is going to turn out to be correct. So uh, thank you for your email, Mike. Let's go to line one and talk to Julie. Julie, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Glad to. So I'm, I'm very new at this. Um, just been kind of dipping into things and trying to learn as much as I can maybe over the last year. And I'm, I'm intrigued by um, sandwich lease options. Uh-huh. And I just wondered if you could give some thoughts on just in general what you think about that. And then secondly, um, wondering if you have to go through an attorney to get all of the forms or if there's some kind of template form out there to, um, to use when you do a deal. What part of the world are you in, Julie? Indiana. Okay. Um, if you if you had said Texas, I would give you a completely different answer that I'm that I'm going to give. Okay. You. Um, okay. So let me take these one one at a time. Your first question was, "What do I think of sandwich lease options?" And my answer right. is, um, for the right kind of seller and the right kind of property, they are a great idea. In fact, they they solve a problem a particular kind of problem that no other creative buying strategy solves. So there's a there's a particular sort of situation, which is yep. se seller owes more money than their house is worth, and yet you are not ready to commit to making their payments ad infinitum because you're not sure that the neighborhood's going the right direction, you're not... Um, there's just not enough money in it for you to commit to uh -huh. making 28 years worth of payments. Um, or the seller doesn't want to give up the title until he, until his loans paid off. Those, those are the two situations that you see where sandwich lease is like the only thing you can do. Right. I mean, it's like the perfect right. solution. Right. 
a lot of the situations that you see are not going to quite fit that model. I mean, there's a lot of sellers out there that they don't they don't really owe more than their house is worth. They just owe more than they could they could sell it for and not have to bring money to the closing because of the closing costs and you know fees they would have to pay on behalf of a traditional buyer and things like that. Those deals are often better solved with something like a subject to because okay yes well lease options do have as with every strategy all right they do have certain downsides uh like the fact that the seller is actually still on title and can do all kinds of interesting things like not pay their their income taxes or go get another loan on the property that are going to mess your deal up it's interesting because um was it last week or the week before? If you go to the if you go to our website, realliferealestate.com, there's a podcast it was the week before last. There's a podcast up, a gal named Wendy Patton, who has done yep. hundreds of those. <laughs> and she she talks about some of these pros and cons uh in more detail because she had a whole show all to herself. Uh so you might want to listen to that. Um so yeah, I it, I, I don't have I, I guess I feel agnostic about lease options. Um, I, I don't dislike them. I think they they are best used in a fairly limited set of circumstances and that if you're going to do them, you should have other things in your tool bag, like buying subject to the existing loan or owner financing, because sometimes, sometimes those are actually the better answer. Um, the next question that you had was about going to an attorney or templates. And I got to tell you... Um, going to an attorney and saying draw me up from scratch these documents that probably you the attorney don't really understand and so you're going to have to go out and research it and it's kind of the blind leading the blind because I'm not 100% sure what I wanted to say and you're not going to be 100% sure what it should say either that is that is going down a bad path so is just downloading some contract from the internet and saying well I'm going to use this because there are there are you know, it, it is a lease and it is an option to buy. Okay, so the leases sometimes from state to state have to say different things. The option to buy is typically, typically kind of the same wherever you go. The right combination is get a, get a template from someone who has done a lot of these things and have kind of worked through the problems and then take it to your attorney. And say okay. how how would we how would we make this like a hundred percent Indiana legal? And a lot of times they'll say, oh well, this is actually fine. Um, sometimes they say, oh no 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 no, you have to have this clause. Uh, that that's really the right combination of strategies because I I, I was reminded of this this painful story uh, just just the other day. Um, the first time I wanted to put a property in a land trust. I went to my attorney, the guy who had done all of my LLC work and was doing my closing work and all that sort of stuff. And I said, I heard that I should be putting my properties in a land trust. Can you do one of this for me? He said, yeah, sure, no problem. And in a couple of weeks, he came back with this document and he charged me $1,200 to draw it up. And it said land trust on the top of it. And I didn't know all that much about land trusts, and it looked very legal and very official. And so I, I went about starting to use it and I probably put 30 or 40 properties in this land trust and then I tried to sell one of them and I discovered that what this dude had done is taken a living trust like you would use for 
passing your stuff on to your kids. And he basically just kind of whited out living trust and put land trust at the top. And what I had was not at all what I thought I had. And because it was a revocable trust and there were, there were a couple of things wrong with it that we, we basically had to fix title before I was able to sell the properties. And my problem was I hadn't given him something. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't want to say he didn't know what he was doing. And I, I didn't hand him something and say, this is what a land trust is. Is there anything wrong with it for Ohio? <laughs> Which is what I should have done. So that, that's probably the direction to go with that is, is, you know, find somebody who's done a decent number of these because they do, you know, I know, I know the contracts that I started out with 20 years ago are different contracts than the contracts that I'm using now because something went wrong and I changed the contract and something else went wrong and I changed the contract and then take it to an attorney who sort of knows what they're doing with leases and with options. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. I really appreciate your call, Julie. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Um, We are going to take a quick break, after which we will go back to the phones at 877-772-9658 and also uh, to the email at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week. Uh, we're going to go back to the phones and talk to Kim, who's called in on line one. Kim, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thanks, Vina. You're very welcome. Hi. My question is, I have one property, and I am in the process of buying another, and I've not started an LLC yet. Um what are your thoughts on how many properties per LLC, or does it matter? You're about done. You you need to go ahead and get an LLC and and just stick these two properties in it and and not not worry about what happens next until all that is completed because it makes me, <laughs> it makes me nervous when people say I assume these are rentals, right? Yes. Yeah, it makes me nervous when people say, "Oh yeah, I have these rentals and they're in my own name." And the, the the reason that it makes me nervous is years of experience with tenants who are perfectly capable of using the auditor site and can go look up who owns their property and will sometimes show up at your door because they're mad because you gave them an eviction notice and you're a woman. Yeah. And, you know, that happened to me once when I was at home alone at 10 o'clock at night. And wow. it, it it felt it felt like a safety issue. You know what I'm saying? When, right. Because because he was mad. He, he was mad that you know I put a notice on his door where everyone could see it that said he hadn't paid his rent. I'm like, dude, that's what the law says I have to do. Oh, he was mad. So so um, how about uh, you get off the phone? You get on the phone with your attorney and say I need to start it now. You can actually go. Are you in Ohio? Yes. Okay. So you can actually go. To the state's website and go and reserve your name and and you know get get all that started like right now it's not it, they, they do it for you instantly if the name isn't already taken they just do it for you and then tomorrow you can call up your attorney and say i need an llc operating agreement and then you're going to deed your properties over to that llc um okay. and that way nobody gets to know who you are anymore um also of course i mean in addition to the safety issue uh it also provides a level of of protection for your for your other stuff for your bank account your own personal house and all that sort of thing that your attorney can explain to you now when you 
I, I seem to have touched my microphone in the wrong way and it went off. Um, when you when you bought the first property, did you get bank financing? Yes, but that that property is paid for now. Oh, nice. And this next one, are you getting bank financing? No, I'm paying cash for that too. Okay, good for you. Mm-mm-mm. Check out Kim. <laughs> um, so so the reason I asked is because if you if you are trying to get conventional financing at any point, you want to refi the property. You know anything like that? Mm-hmm. Fannie Mae doesn't really buy loans on properties that are owned by LLCs, so you might have to take it out of the LLC to refinance it. And if you had, if you had already, if you had a bank loan on property number one and you were about to transfer it into the LLC, I would give you the warning that, in theory, that does in fact trip the due on sale clause. But most oh, banks, yeah. most banks don't. You know, as long as you're still the payor and it's your company, they're not going to give you any trouble about it generally. Okay, that was my concern, why I didn't have an LLC before. Um, I did have bank financing, and I thought I couldn't, you know, do that with with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a it's a tightrope that, <laughs> that we have to walk, because, I mean, it does, like, I transferred it out of my name and into the LLC. I, I officially tripped the due on sale clause, because the due on sale clause says I'm supposed to keep it in my name. But on the other hand, as long as it's in my name, I'm at risk. Okay. So it's sort of this, you know, everybody everybody knows what the risks are, but it's sort of a, a balancing act, and most people choose to go ahead and do the LLC thing. Uh, it should not it should not cost you a fortune to to do okay. all of this. The the filing with the state is, you know, unless you want to rush it, in which case it might be like a hundred and ten dollars. Um, it should it'll it'll cost you under a hundred to do the filing, and then the operating agreement part, which is where you say things like this is what the company is supposed to do and if you have a partner you name the partnership shares and how each of you can get out if you want out that's the part that's the only part the attorney has to do okay and then and then it's a simple matter of literally deeding just creating a new deed that says kim is selling this property to kim's llc okay thank you so much vina i really appreciate that (laughs) you're welcome yeah Yeah, get it, get it done because that's one of those okay. things that's like that's it's, my goal. It, it's like writing a will, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it when I'm dying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, you don't. You don't want to transfer it after something's already happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All Thanks right. Thank you very much for your call, uh, Tina. I have a another. Was there another call? It just came in. I. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at Tina's. Yes, that was that was Kim. I've got an email that I'm looking at from Tina. See, I can't do two things at once. Oh, I used to be able to. Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Yes, so I hear. Uh, so Tina sent an email saying, if there is non-payment on a land contract, do you foreclose? And can you explain the foreclosure process and costs? Do you do a deed in lieu? Well, see, Tina, this is why... It's a good idea to say where you're writing from because whether or not you're going to need to foreclose is going to depend on which state your land contract is in. And then further, some things like how long has the person been paying. So here in Ohio, until the until the borrower has either had the land contract for five years or has paid off 20% of the original balance there is a process called forfeiture on a land contract. It is not foreclosure, which in Ohio takes months and months and months and months and months. It's about a 60-day process. 
And an attorney would need to explain that to you because it starts with a notice. And then after a certain amount of time, you can go ahead and go and ask for the forfeiture. That There are forfeiture processes in a number of states. Um, I know Michigan has one. I know Indiana has one. But you're going to have to find out if there's one in yours or not. If there's not a forfeiture, you're going to do a full-blown foreclosure. The process is call an attorney who's done foreclosures before and let them do it for you. You can do all the stuff yourself. You can do the paperwork yourself, but you're going to end up running to the, you're going to, you're going to end up running to the um, courthouse all the time, like to file things and pay things. And you should just pay the attorney to do that. Before though, you even, before you even um, uh, start that, you need to try and work this out with the seller or with the buyer, with the land contract buyer. And the way you need to do that is you need to go to them and you're not asking for a deed in lieu of foreclosure because they don't have a deed to give you in lieu of foreclosure. What you're asking for is a release of land contract and, you know, sweeten it. I know you're probably mad, but, but sweeten it up for them by saying, look, if you, if you sign this over to me and then you're out by next weekend or whatever, give them some reasonable period of time you and I are cool. I won't come after you for anything. Um, you'll be able to move on with your life. If you make me go to court, I'm going to try and collect every single solitary thing that you owe me, including any damages as you've done and anything you haven't paid. And it's going to go on your credit record. So let's just do this the easy way. This isn't working for you. Deed it over to me and we can go. Now, if he deeds it over to you or if he gives you the release on the land contract and you can't... Um, they don't, he doesn't move, you can then evict him because he's no longer got a right to be there. So that would be my piece of advice. But you do need to go see an attorney who's familiar with land contracts in your state. Uh, just got a qu- I know we've got Bob on the line, but just got a quick question from Alton who said, can you give a five-minute primer on buying notes? I was not able to attend the last RIA meeting. Thanks in advance. Yeah, Alton, the problem is I don't have five minutes, but I got some good news for you, which is Cincinnati RIA is holding an open-to-the-public webinar um, next Tuesday, so a week from yesterday, with Joe Varnador, who is going to give you a five-minute primer on buying notes because we've gotten a bunch of these questions. You can find out more about that by going to uh, Cincinnati RIA's uh, Facebook page. So Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati on Facebook. The link is up there, and you should also be getting an email about that. Let's go to line two and talk to Bob. Bob, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Good evening. Hi, Bob. Yes, I got a question about subleasing. Yes. Uh, I got a used lease with a tenant. Uh, they subleased to a second person, and now they want to get rid of the uh, sublease. Does, the, does my tenant evict the sublease, or do I got to evict the sublease, or do I got to evict the tenant? Okay, so um, let's start with, does your lease have a no subleasing clause in it? No, it does not. Okay, so next time it will, though, right? Yes, it will. Because this ha- this happens like a thousand percent of the time when your tenants sublease because they don't know how to screen tenants, <laughs> so they put somebody they put somebody okay. into your house that isn't going to pay. So I assume that the problem at this point is that the sublessee is not paying your tenant, right? Yes. Well, see, you're kind of in a good position here, Bob, because um, that guy doesn't owe you money; your tenant owes you money. Yes. And it is it, what you need to say to him is, uh, you know, I don't know what you did here, um, but you're the one who's legally responsible. So let me just say that if I don't get my rent, um, it is going to be you and him I evict, not just him, because I don't know anything about this guy. He's not my tenant. I have to evict you. 
and I'm pretty sure you don't want that. So find a way to fix it. Now, really, uh, your tenant is probably going to have a hard time doing an eviction. I mean, he could get an attorney and go down and say, I subleased it and here I have the right to do that and so on. And he might, if the, if the, if the subleasing tenant doesn't show up in court, which is probably what's going to happen, he may actually get away with evicting that guy. But the bottom line is it's your tenant that owes you money, not the sublessee, and he needs to fix it. So the only the only point at which you are going to take legal action here is if you stop getting the payment, and then you're going to evict your tenant, and you're going to name the sublessee on the eviction, but it's your tenant who's financially responsible, not this other guy. Okay. Okay, that answers my question. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for your call, Bob. And, and hey, get a no subleasing agreement in your lease so that this doesn't happen going forward. Thank you, Vita. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, all righty, uh, got about two minutes left according to Mike. So, um, let's go back to the emails here and see what we can see. Um, let's see, Alton, that's another question from Alton. He says, could you talk about how your business is structured? Do you have a property management company and do you own a construction or property maintenance company? So Alton is asking more from an entity perspective, uh, how the business is structured as opposed to the earlier question, which was more about the employees. Um, it is, the rentals are owned by LLCs. The rentals are managed by my brokerage. So I have, I I actually, I'm a licensed real estate broker and my brokerage manages my properties. I do not have a separate property management company, uh, because it's not, it's not necessary. I don't do any work through my brokerage except for property management and buying my own properties. Um, I do not own a, a construction company. Uh, I do not own a property maintenance company. There are occasionally tax and or benefits reasons to separate, to parse your company down that far. To say, instead of instead of my rental company hiring a construction manager, I'm going to spin off yet another company that only does construction, and that company is going to hire the construction manager who's then exclusively going to work on my rentals and rehabs. There, there can be tax reasons for that. There can be asset protection reasons for that. There can be um, reasons along the lines of, I want this company to provide certain benefits that the other companies don't provide. I have not found those reasons to do that. And um, recently, in the last couple of years, I actually greatly simplified my entity structure because it had kind of grown out of control where I had, you know, five different LLCs that owned rentals and I had, you know, other ones that owned rentals in partnerships with other people. And, you know, it just, it got it got to the it got to the point where the number of checkbooks and the number of tax returns was just overwhelming and i sat down with my asset protection guy and i said how can i simplify this without putting myself in any danger and he explained it and it was all good so you should do the same thing great question though alton and thank you for your multiple questions thanks to everyone who participated today on question and answer week we'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing until then Happy investing.